A Thoughtful Faith podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. We are your hosts. I'm Mark Rigo. And I'm Gina Colvin. Our purpose at A Thoughtful Faith is to provide support for Mormons who want to stay engaged with their religion, yet are struggling to find conversations that support their faith transitions. While we seek to honor the beauty of the LDS faith, we also understand that discipleship doesn't necessarily mean uniformity and agreement. Hence, we make room here for all of those who are constructing or reconstructing a thoughtful faith journey. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go toward keeping the podcasts alive and building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith. I'm Jay Griffith. Sarah Collette has been kind enough to let me be involved in helping produce this podcast and we'll be here to ask intelligent questions and ensure that it turns out well, despite my involvement. <laughs> let me see. Let me set this podcast up before we introduce our guest, George Hanley. For a long time, I've felt a pull by God to care for the environment and try in a loving way to encourage those around me to do the same, to try to be a good steward of his grand and beautiful creations. So much of this desire and feeling is tied to my faith in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. From my personal prayers, to the scriptures, to the temple, to what I learn in science, to what I grow, raise, and eat, my time in nature, and my association with my many dear friends, all these blessings propel me towards a love of God, and by extension a love, gratitude, and respect for what He has so intelligently created and shared with me. At the same time, I find that many good people in my faith don't quite see it the way I do. I think some see the word environmentalism with fear and trepidation, and at times with good reason, there are extreme elements out there. Another valid concern is the need for a healthy economy, and when that seems to conflict with environmental concerns, that causes problems. And agency and property rights also have a voice. So in this podcast, as with several others that will follow, we will discuss these issues as it relates to being a Mormon, and how having a thoughtful faith can inform our values and actions in this area. To start out this series, I've invited George Hanley, Professor of Comparative Studies, Interdisciplinary Humanities at BYU, to share his thoughts and experiences with us. I first met George a couple of years ago when he spoke to a small group interested in the environment. I was impressed with his thoughtfulness and even-handed responses to difficult questions regarding land stewardship. If I may, let me briefly read his biography, and then Sarah and I will begin peppering Professor Hanley with questions. Some of George's publications include two books on inter-American themes, post-slavery literatures in the Americas, and New World Poetics, Nature and the Adamic Imagination of Whitman, Neruda, and Walcott. He has also co-edited Caribbean Literature and the Environment, Stewardship and the Creation, LDS Perspectives on the Environment, and Post-Colonial Ecologies from Oxford Press. His book, Home Waters, A Year of Recompenses on the Provo River, is a work of creative nonfiction that includes nature writing, personal and environmental history, and reflections on eco-theology. He is currently working on a book, From Chaos to Cosmos, Literature as Eco-Theology. 
George is also serving as chair of the Department of Humanities, Classics, and Comparative Literature. He is the advisor to the student club, EcoResponse, and is active in many civic activities. He blogs at patheos.com. He and his wife, Amy, have four children and live in Provo. Did I miss anything on that, George? Oh, well, if the embarrassing parts, but that was, that was good. Thanks. Well, speaking of embarrassing parts, this is your chance to share those. And typically, when we uh, interview someone for these podcasts, we love to have a little bit of historical background. And okay. so we'd love to, Sarah and I would love to hear kind of how you arrived at where you are now when you're thinking about environmentalism. Um, maybe even how the church has helped with that and maybe even hindered that at times. But you can start from the day you were born, if you'd like. <laughs> uh, that well, might be embarrassing. That <laughs> might, that's right. We're hoping. Yeah, well, let's see where to begin. I I, um, I think, uh, well, it may be useful to have a little bit of a spiritual autobiography to, to include. I, I, I was sort of a latecomer to my testimony in the in the gospel and in the church. I was raised in a Mormon family in Connecticut, um, but, uh, you know, was sort of a wandering teenager who really wasn't very confident about what I wanted in life or what I thought I knew. And I was pretty skeptical about everything and curious about everything. So I spent a good portion of my teenage years, um, you know, living in, in, uh, in a little bit of confusion spiritually, but good confusion, maybe expected confusion at that uh, stage of life. And uh, given uh, my circumstances, I was the only Mormon in a very large high school. At least at one point I was the only Mormon, but um, you know, I didn't have very many LDS friends. And, and uh, so I, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time outdoors wandering in the woods in Connecticut and, um, actually spent some summers out at the Teton Valley Boys Ranch, which was run by Lowell Benyon uh, back in the 1970s, um, and had the extremely good fortune of being a camp counselor there the last summer he ran the ranch. And those summers were really um, formative for me in many, many ways. I mean, not only intellectually being around someone like Lowell Benyon and being challenged by him in really positive ways to be better in every sense. Um, but I was also around some people that were good for me to be around. Um, uh, and I lost a brother to suicide. He, he took his life when I was 18 years old. He was 22, um, the summer before or the winter before I graduated from high school. And so I spent my last summer, uh, that year at the ranch as a a counselor. Uh, that was the last summer that Lowell Benyon ran the ranch. So that was a very intense, formative stage of life for me. I, I became very um, spiritually, religiously engaged in, in in Mormonism and intellectually engaged in Mormonism. I read a lot of, uh, you know, Lowell Benyon and a lot of uh, Hugh Nibley and Gene England, and, and I read A Thoughtful Faith ed- edited by uh, Philip Barlow and lots of other really valuable um books at that time that really helped me integrate my spirituality and my intellect, a lot of Neil Maxwell. And, um, but I, environmental issues were not anywhere on my radar, to be honest. I had a good friend in high school who was very intensely interested in environmentalism, but I, I sort of saw that as his thing and not mine. And, 
I loved the outdoors. I think I had pretty uh, foundational spiritual experiences in the Tetons. I mean, who doesn't? But, you know, it was, they were, for a kid like me coming from back east, I think they were utterly transforming. Um, but I still didn't connect that to any kind of notion of stewardship or, nor did I really understand the environmental crisis all that well. I went to college at Stanford University, interrupted that uh, with one semester at BYU and then a mission, but um, both started and ended at Stanford. And um, environmentalism was a big topic at Stanford in those days, but it was primarily focused on population control, as I remember it back then. I don't rem- I hear. I remember hearing a little bit about climate change, um, and I knew a lot of people were really concerned about it, but again, I didn't, I didn't feel really called to it. Um, I was really drawn to literature and language and studied comparative literature and went my way pursuing that as a profession. I got my graduate, uh, degrees at UC Berkeley across the Bay. And so I ended up spending 10 years of my life in the Bay area where obviously environmentalism is everywhere there. So it was, it was something I was certainly very aware of, but it was never part of my formal education. It was never, and, and growing up LDS, I think I probably speak for a lot of people, at least my generation. I never heard anything about it in a church context either. I, I I don't think I heard a lot of anti-environmentalism either. I just think it was kind of not really talked about. Um, although I, (laughs) I was here, uh, the fall of 1984, and I distinctly remember um, James Watt, the Secretary of the Interior for Reagan, speaking at BYU, giving what I considered, even with my unformed environmental ideas back then, a very offensive talk about, <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, you know, his his was just a sort of use up the, the world philosophy that my instincts told me was very wrong and, 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 uh, really short, uh, narrow minded, um, and short termed. And I didn't like it. That's all I remember. Uh, and then, and then when I took my first job at Flagstaff, um, Arizona at Northern Arizona university, I was in a university where environmentalism was part of the curriculum. Everybody was dealing with it. It was a campus that really prided itself on trying to green the curriculum and make it kind of their specialty. And they had a lot of really well-known environmental thinkers there. And a lot of people who were very religious and engaged in environmentalism, both intellectually and personally from a religious perspective. And that really caught my attention. I had a conversation with a colleague of mine who was Jewish. She had studied um, at um, Claremont Colleges uh, under the direction of a Christian theologian named John Cobb, who's very well known in eco-theology. And I had never heard the term. I didn't know what it was. And she was telling me all about it. And then she said, you know, what do Mormons believe about the earth? And I started to recite to her some of the things that we believe, that the world was created spiritually before it was created physically, that the earth is our ultimate celestial destination, that God is embodied. And I mean, her jaw hit the floor and she couldn't believe what she was hearing. And she said, do Mormons know this? (laughs) (laughs) And I, yeah, I mean, Flagstaff is about 10% LDS. So she knew enough, uh, had met uh, enough Mormons over the course of her living there that 
what she knew about them was that they weren't particularly environmentally engaged and and was a little surprised to hear these sort of really radical uh, doctrinal ideas in Mormonism. So um, she said, you ought to, you ought to write about that. You know, people would like to hear that. And and so that kind of planted the thought in me that, you know, maybe I, maybe I could do that. And, and meanwhile, professionally, I was making the transition from being a literary critic to more, a more specialized uh, eco critic, somebody who studies the relationship between literature and the environment. And that was because a lot of people there were doing it. They had a workshop to help me think about how to do it. And I got really engaged in it and, and it really lit my fire. I said, this is, this is really fun. This is, this is a new professional challenge for me that I, I could see I was going to enjoy for many, many years. And I was only there for three years. I applied to BYU, uh, in 1998 and came here in 1998. And at that point I had, was very much, Thinking, in fact, I had a conversation uh, with my chair when I was hired. I said, "I really want to continue to do literature of the Americas and Latin American and Caribbean things, which is what I was specialized in doing." But I said, "I really want to pursue this relationship with the environment and re- religion, environment and literature." And he said, "Yeah, we, we would love you to do that." So, so I hit the ground at BYU, sort of with that in mind professionally, but I also started getting, um, the, the same woman, um, in Flagstaff, uh, gave a graduation speech that I, that I always remember to the students at NAU. And she said, she talked about how mobile American society is and how we move so frequently. And she said, you may, you may not be able to control that. You may be in a profession where moving becomes, part of what you do, but wherever you go, try to act as if you're going to live there for the rest of your life and love a place like you would your native home. Treat it like you've always been there and that you always will be there. And that's the kind of citizens that every community needs. And that idea really stuck to me. I think I was really attracted to the romance of actually staying in the same place for the rest of my life as well. And when I moved here to Utah, I had been born here and left when I was young, when I was seven. And so it felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm here, you know, I'm home. And so I, I got really serious about trying to understand everything I could about the environment here and both politically, but ecologically as well. And personally, just trying to get to know the place. Do you want to talk about that word eco theology just a little bit? Yeah. Um, Because I, I have read that in some of your writings and that was new to me. Yeah. Well, in 1967, there was an essay written by a medieval historian who studied the history of Christianity named Lynn White. And it was, the essay is actually pretty brief. It's not a long essay. It's called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, 1967. And he said that... Um, he detailed what he considered to be some of the major uh, missteps that Christianity uh, engaged in over its history, um, specifically identifying the moments where Christianity turned away from uh, a more animistic view of the world. That is, a view in which the physical world had some sort of spiritual matter, some sort of spiritual identity that was found in pagan theologies, right? And he said, you know, in early Christianity, that was not, that was not so much uh, a distinction between Christianity and paganism, but over time, Christianity really rejected 
this idea of spirit and nature, certainly the worship of nature itself was considered idolatrous, but that sort of went to the point, got to the point where Christians saw the world as nothing but dead matter. Um, and then when they heard the language of Genesis talking about subduing the earth and having dominion over the earth and being lords over the earth, that seemed to be interpreted in later generations of Christianity as a justification for the exploitation of nature. Now, I'm simplifying his argument, but it caused a major uproar. He, one of the things he said in that essay, there are two sentences in that essay that really, to this day, still grab my attention. He said, um, the, the, the problem is fundamentally a religious one, and the only way we're going to solve this problem is by uh, finding a new religion or rethinking our old one. And so he actually wasn't saying, you know, religion is such a problem that it needs to step out of the way, which is, of course, how many people think. Um, that they think, you know, religion's emphasis on population uh, or its refusal to to really critique the problem of the human population or its refusal to its emphasis on the end of the world sort of tends to promote a kind of... Uh, um, you know, take what you can while you have the chance attitude and so on. And he basically was saying, you know, that what we do to the earth really depends upon our conception of the human relationship to the natural world. And that understanding comes primarily from religion. Um, even arguably, um, for people who are not religious, um, Western culture nevertheless has inherited these attitudes from religion. And so we would be best going back to religious sources of those ideas and as he said either either invent some new ones or rethink the old ones and um what a lot what happened in the wake of that was uh an explosion of interest in religion and the environment a lot of theologians came to the defense of christianity and said Lynn White got it wrong this is the way you know christians understand uh, the natural world uh, others said, no, he's right, but we do need to rethink our assumptions. And so there's a whole academic tradition of writing about not just Christianity, but world religion. I mean, you can find um, edited books on world religions and the environment covering Hinduism and Islam and and uh, everything, uh, Judaism and, and so on, and, and, and indigenous traditions, of course, as well, a lot of polytheistic traditions, but um, certainly the many strands of Christianity. On top of the academic discussion, um, there have been many statements by church uh, leaders, ecclesiastical leaders of different world religions, um, encouraging better stewardship of the natural world. The most prominent examples would be um, uh, Patriarch Bar Bartholomew, who is the head of the Orthodox Church, the Pope, uh, of course, the new Pope, the new has Pope. named himself Francis, not by accident. He cares a great deal about the environment. In his first uh, speech, he, he spoke about environmental stewardship. Um, the Dalai Lama has spoken about it, and, and many others. So there have been, not only on the ecclesiastical level, but on the academic level, quite a, a prominent discussion about environmentalism within religious contexts. And surprisingly, you can find that discussion happening in um, evangelical circles, Baptist circles, 
uh, like I say, Jewish and Muslim circles um, uh, in the United States and elsewhere in the world. So it's it's become one of the most significant trends in religious culture worldwide, this concern for the environment and a need to define again or rethink definitions of stewardship in light of what we now understand we're doing to the planet. Um, when you encountered the article, had... Mormonism really become part of the discussion? Had any, was anyone writing from a Mormon perspective? And also, I'm curious to know what the defense was from, from some of those Christian um, theologians. Um, well, the answer to the first question is not really. No one had, I mean, there, there are uh, two or three really important essays by Hugh Nibley that were written um, later than 1967, if I'm correct on that. I think they were probably in the 70s and maybe into the 80s when they were written. Um, but nevertheless, they weren't on anyone's radar, certainly not on eco-theologians' radar academically. No one was reading stuff about Mormonism. And so they weren't typically included in the anthologies. Even as late as a decade ago, there was a, a decade-long series of conferences at Harvard, uh, I think it was a collaboration between Yale and Harvard uh, dealing with religion and the environment, and they never touched Mormonism. Mm -hmm. um, they had, you know, things on different uh, Christian uh, denominations, but they didn't they didn't talk about Mormonism. So that was yeah, that was what I wanted to jump into, and that's what my colleague was encouraging me to do. So in in, in two thousand, I published an essay called uh, the LD, uh, the Environmental Ethics of LDS Belief. Um, and tried to sort of lay that out. Now, prior to that essay, there was a book that's still around uh, called New Genesis, A Mormon Reader on Land and Community, co-edited by Terry Tempest Williams, uh, uh, William Smart, and Gibbs Smith. And that essay, that collection of essays actually has um, uh, two essays by general authorities in it, um, Vaughn Featherstone and Hugh Pinnock uh, at the time. Um, when I read that book, I really liked it, but I felt like it didn't, it didn't systematically touch on the doctrine. It was kind of anecdotal in terms of the treatment of doctrine. People would quote their favorite scripture and then they would talk about their personal experiences and their personal views of stewardship. But I thought something that connected Mormon doctrine with the broader conversation on eco-theology was necessary. And that's what I tried to, uh, tried to do in that essay. Um, but back to your to the other part of your question, it's really interesting because what I started to find when I read eco theology, in, especially in Christianity, was that what they described was a theology that sounded an awful lot like an awful lot like Mormonism. Now I. I know that's an, <laughs> there's a, there's a Mormon tendency to sort of want to see everything as, as Mormon with a proto Mormon without realizing it. And so I was a little nervous about, am I doing this here? Am I doing this here? But when it, like I read the uh, work of John Cobb, uh, under whom this woman had studied, for example, and he talked, he tried to articulate a notion of matter that included, um, some sort of intelligence in matter something spiritual, something maybe even conscious in the physical world that would be a reason for us to have, to give us pause before we use the world. Not that he was saying we can't touch it or we can't kill animals or use the soil to grow our crops, but that we ought to, we ought to think in terms of, and that was Lynn White's original argument, right? Was that as soon as we got rid of the idea of spirit and nature, we sort of lost that sense of um, 
um, one term that is used is intersubjectivity. That feeling that we sometimes have in the natural world that we're among subjects. We're not the only subject there. We might be the only human being in sight, but we feel the presence of things, right? And Cobb was a theologian, a Christian theologian. Yes, yeah. And and then there were other notions, uh, readings of the fall and readings of Genesis that talked about, uh, for example, Genesis 1.22 uh, is a verse where the Lord commands the whales and commands the fowls to multiply and replenish and to fill the airs and to fill the seas. So a lot of eco-theologians have said, look, God loves biodiversity. He loves reproduction. He wants the world to reproduce uh, plentifully. It, he wants the world and the, the physical world to be filled with life. And that's and also God is constantly saying throughout the creation in Genesis that it's good. So it has intrinsic value. So that's part of their argument too, is it has intrinsic value. So when we understand the word dominion or subdue, um, some uh, biblical scholars have gone back and looked at those words and said, well, th- those might be either poor translations of the original words or they might be understood differently. That dominion has something to do with making home. And and um, these are more concepts of stewardship rather than ownership, right? That you're actually answerable to God. Now, Hugh Nibley said it more clearly than anybody. He actually, in his essay, Subduing the Earth, really tackles that very question and rereads Genesis through the light of the book of Moses and says, that's not the way to understand it at all. This isn't a license to exterminate life. It's it's a It's a mandate to be accountable to God for how we treat his creation. And what's a little fun anecdote is that Wendell Berry, one of the most famous environmental thinkers alive, came out to BYU about 20 years ago. I don't know exactly the date, but Nibley was still alive, and he met Nibley. Now, in one of his essays um, called God and Country, he actually quotes Nibley on this very issue of subduing the earth. And he says, you know, as the Mormon writer says, and he goes on to quote Nibley, correcting the record that our interpretation of Genesis has been wrong. And and this essay, God and Country, is a very powerful critique of religion and the environment and how religion has sort of lost its ground, in part, he says, because it's become about money. And because Christianity is not willing to criticize the sources of income upon which it depends. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and he talks about how money kind of corrupts the whole process and so on. So I actually met Barry at a conference uh, more than 10 years ago now. It was almost, yeah, it was actually about 14 years ago. And he was giving a, the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment, where a bunch of uh, geeks like, like myself go. <laughs> and, uh, and he gave a reading. Um, it was, I'll never forget it because it was a reading from his book that was about to come out called Life is a Miracle, which if you've never read, I highly recommend. It's just a fantastic little essay. Um, and afterwards, I, you know, I wanted to meet him and get his, get a signature and actually ask him if he'd come back to BYU because I'd heard he'd come. And I said, um, the environmentalist any, superstar. <laughs> I was like, any chance you could, any chance you'd be interested in coming back to, to BYU? And he, he was very gracious, and he said, well, um, you know, I get a lot of invitations, but anyway, and he, he sort of changed the subject, but he said, 
He said, I've never forgotten meeting Hugh Nibley. He said, he set the record straight for me about how to understand Christianity's relationship to the environment and, um, and, uh, and, you know, went on about what an important uh, encounter that was when he came to BYU. So I thought that was really powerful to me that, to think that uh, Wendell Berry, who's, I don't mean to say that everything he's ever written about Christianity and the environment is all stems from Wendell Berry, but clearly this is a man who's a deep Christian thinker whose thinking is very useful to Mormons. I think a lot, I know a lot of Mormons who really drink deeply from the stuff he's written because he's he's so thoughtful about his Christianity in a way that C.S. Lewis was. Um, and and more specifically about the environment. And I, I just found that really powerful that, you know, part of his genealogy of his ideas came from from a Mormon. And that we ought to we ought to recognize that that's that we didn't have to invent our doctrines. We just haven't appreciated them. But a lot of other Christians have been bending over backwards. I don't mean to say that. They're, well, John Cobb's notion of intelligence and matter. I don't know. I to the I off the top of my head, I can't remember where he gets that from. I think he's just maybe wanting that to be true. That's very cool, George. I want to go back um, something you said because it so it, it feels like there has been a shift from what. Originally Christians, and maybe it's not just Christians, but world religions. Um, and it, it made me think, is, is it tied to the Industrial Revolution where we became more distant um, and more removed from the physical world around us and more dependent upon inventions of our own making? And, and that carried us away, I guess, from from how we viewed nature. You know, it seems like our theology typically follows our, our culture. However our culture moves, our theology, theology starts to blend a little bit and, and, and match it. So it, it makes me wonder, um, in the industrial countries particularly, if if that's why we kind of moved from, you talked about, I think, a pantheistic yeah. view of nature to more of we are the dominant ones, because we probably started to feel very dominant because of what we were able to do and how we were able to shape the environment and had better control over it than we, at least we thought we did, than we ever had before. Is is that part of what plays into this shift? And is it just Christianity or is it other religions? What, you know, you it, about it's, that? It, that's a really important question. It's a, a really difficult one to answer um, because there are a lot of things going on at the same time. <laughs> and there's a lot of ambiguity to the story. Um you know, some people will point out that the, it is the industrial nations now, the most developed nations that are leading the call, with maybe the exception of the United States dragging its heels, but <laughs> are making the call to to um, have a better environmental record. And in fact, um, being a developed nation in some ways allows a nation to be a better steward rather than being... On you know trying to play catch up economically, oftentimes uh, corners are cut and and costs are externalized. You know Wendell Berry's argument is is along those lines that basically the small family farm went the way of the dinosaur, and that's caused a lot of our problems because when you are dependent on the health of your own soil for your own livelihood, you're much more attuned to what is right and what's wrong. How you treat the animals, how you treat the uh, the soil, uh, how you care for your stewardship. I don't really have an argument with that, but I do think that it's more complicated than that. I mean, I've often asked students, okay, how many of you, uh, you know, at BYU, how many of you have 
been raised on a farm, usually one or two hands go up. And then I say, how many of you who had parents who were raised on a farm? And maybe five or six or seven hands go up. How many of you had grandparents who grew up on a farm? It's almost everybody. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a very clear pattern that we have become, in Barry's terms, unsettled from the land. We don't, we don't, so when we go to the grocery store and we buy a, a slab of salmon or apples or grapes or whatever, we don't know where they're from. We don't know anything about the maintenance of the land. And we've sort of abdicated all that responsibility, right? We've said somebody else can worry about themselves as long as they bring me something that looks good, tastes good and is good for my body, I don't really care what went into the production of it. Well, we're starting to care, right? We've had Food Inc. and <laughs> Super Size Me and all these documentaries exposing what's going on, and we've had Michael Pollan writing about all this stuff, and, and we're starting to become more aware that we're more uh, unethical to animals than ever before, right? Um, and we've got all kinds of serious problems that we're, we're not addressing. But, but because there's so much displacement of responsibility, it's almost impossible to trace it back, and it's easy to just become apathetic. But I think there's another problem to the story, and that is that after World War II, America really becomes the world power, right? And we got bitten by a bug of um, unlimited progress, unlimited possibility. We got so intoxicated by our own technology. And you can trace the average size of a home, the average size of a car, the av- what was once luxury 50 years ago is now, you know, the, the lowest of the low. And everyone invested in wanting this higher and higher quality of life. And we just thought there was no limit to that. And the doomsayers who came along and tried to preach the gospel of limitations and said, well, you know, maybe some of these things have limits. Maybe we shouldn't assume that we can. But we got drunk on that idea. And and a lot of that was environmental engineering through technology. We can do anything if we can put a man on the moon and this was sort of our ideology against the soviet union right against communism that's a godless faithless um state system that's totally robs you of your liberty and so everything became about liberty and um freedom and possibility and opportunity now i don't mean to denigrate those concepts but we abused them we thought they meant and I think if you look scripturally, the notion of limitless freedom is is a pretty dangerous one, right? And I think if you look at the story of Moses, when he has the vision where he sees the creation, and this too, by the way, is a unique Mormon theological principle that other Christians have now adopted, but... That, but you know, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young were famous for introducing this idea, and it's right there in the Book of Moses. There are other worlds. There's possibly other life on other planets. There is no limit. We can't even begin to count how many worlds there are. This notion of more than just one solar system, let alone more than one planet, was pretty radical. So Moses has this incredible vision. By the way, he's told in that vision, thou art my son, right? So he's given sort of divine, uh, he's told he's a spiritually begotten son of God. He has the vision and he collapses and he says, now I know that man is nothing. Something I never had before supposed, right? This weird sort of, wait a minute, I thought I was something, I'm significant, and yet God is also teaching me I'm nothing. The same thing happens to Job, 
right? Job has to go through this more journey painfully. more painfully. <laughs> he has to learn that he's nothing. And God actually lectures him for a good long several chapters about all of the creation. And God keeps saying, what do you know about any of this? You don't know anything. You haven't even begun to see a fraction of what I do and what the world does and what life is all about, right? And all of that diminishes him, not to the point of being insignificant. To be nothing in in Moses' sense doesn't mean we aren't significant. It means we have proper humility, right? And notice that Satan steps in right there. I say, ah, now, now you feel nothing. Well, let me... Let me see if I can help you feel better about that, right? I got some, I got some methods <laughs> for helping you to feel better about that. And, and this has to do with building up oneself through property and the treasures of the earth, right? And this is spelled out in Nibley's essays, uh, that this is a dangerous philosophy that we can, uh, assuage our insecurities and our sense of nothingness through property and through ownership and ruling and controlling the natural world. I'm not saying it's inherently evil to own things. I'm saying, you know, that notion that that I'm intoxicated by it, I feel limitlessly free, and anything that tells me that I should exercise restraint or that I should concern myself about my neighbor while I do this. I mean, I'm always amazed when I talk to, you know, very skeptical people how much the ideology of capitalism has convinced them that there is no connection between what I consume and what other people's lives are like. I mean, that to them is heretical. It's an impossibility. It doesn't make any sense. But you look at the law of consecration as it's articulated in section 104, and God says there's enough in despair, but only if it's done my way. And my way, by the way, (laughs) is bringing the rich down and uplifting the poor. It is more equitable distribution of the world's resources. That's an environmental issue, is the equitable distribution of resources. So when one country or one group of people is amassing all of those resources to themselves at the expense of others, God says, I'm not happy. And until you solve that problem, the whole world lies in sin. I'm I'm paraphrasing, but pretty close to the actual words in 104. But, you know, you hear Mormons say, well, there's enough in despair, so I'm not going to worry. And wait, read the verses. The verses are a little more, uh, a little more damning than that. It's not this free, uh, limitless possibility. I want to go back a little bit because I'm, I'm really interested. You mentioned that the Christian world is kind of adopting more of an LDS perspective. They probably don't recognize that it's an LDS perspective. Where is that perspective coming from? Are they finding it? I mean, you mentioned Job. Is it from the Bible? Are they drawing it from, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, and, and, um, is the Mormon world at this point, because I don't think culturally the culture that I've been exposed to really is involved in this kind of a discussion. I don't hear this at church. I don't hear this in gospel doctrine. <laughs> you yeah. know, this is, but I'm wondering if the LDS, um, intellectual community or environmentalist community is really interacting with the Christian community in this way. Um, well, the, the answer to the first part is that, um, I point you to a really fantastic book by a guy named William Brown called The Seven Pillars of Creation. And what he does is he goes back to, uh, seven accounts of the creation in the Bible. He looks at Psalms. He looks at Job. He looks at, um, Genesis one and two and parts of Isaiah. And he goes through and he basically says, 
he takes all of contemporary, a lot of this is coming from the influence of contemporary science. He's saying, okay, the world is not 6,000 years old. It's millions, in fact, billions of years old. What do we do with that information? What do we do with the story of evolution? What do we do with the notion of chaos in the creation? What do we do with the Big Bang? How do we understand how he doesn't try to say, I'm taking all of those for the gospel truth. He's just simply saying, can the Bible respond to the challenge posed by these scientific theories? And he, he, uh, he convinces me that the Bible does, right? That the Bible is much more sophisticated than we give it credit for. Through these seven illustrations. Through these seven illustrations, yeah. So, the, And that's actually, there are a lot of other examples of that where, where theologians are turning to the Bible. Some theologians... Um, are also trained as scientists. And so what they do is they engage in kind of speculative theology where they're not necessarily trying to do a proof text argument and saying the Bible validates evolution, but they're simply saying, I believe evolution. I think the, the facts are in. So what do I do with that information and how might I think theologically differently, even if there is less than adequate scriptural evidence for it. That doesn't seem to bother some thinkers at all, right? They're just more interested in engaging in what we might call a kind of continuing revelation, right? What Continual light and understanding that they can gain. Um, I, I can only speak personally from my experiences here in Utah. I've been involved um, for six or seven years now in an interfaith effort uh, to fight climate change. Utah Interfaith Power and Light is a Utah chapter of a national organization founded by a, an Episcopalian um, Reverend Sally Bingham. And she is actually speaking next week at the uh, Stegner Symposium. And the Stegner Symposium this year, every year the Stegner Center at the University of Utah and the law school sponsors an environmental conference. And this year it's on religion, faith, and the environment. Um, I'll be speaking there. Uh, Jim Rasband, the dean of the law school at BYU, will be speaking, and Elder Marcus Nash of the 70 will be speaking. So there are at least three LDS voices at the conference. I don't I think that's all there there might be, but I could be wrong. But... Um, there, uh, there's more effort on the, on the, uh, ongoing in terms of this interfaith conversation all the time. And I, you know, you may have heard some of this instruction. I mean, some of it was given by Elder Cook, Elder Christofferson, and some of the worldwide training and in some of the general conference talks. But I hear a message of interfaith collaboration and civic engagement being important components to who we are as a people. And of course, we always get those reminders every year to vote, to be engaged in the civic process. Um, so I've never felt any, from the highest levels of church leadership, I've always felt like there's, there's a call to find a good cause and jump in. You know, and I think I could worry myself too much about why hasn't the church specifically said X or Y or Z? You know, they haven't said a whole lot about human, human trafficking, which I consider <laughs> to be a massive moral problem. Um, and they haven't spoken specifically about conflicts in the world or genocide or other kinds of things. And, you know, you could say, well, I wish they would, and maybe it's even a failing that they're not, but, but I think that also misses the point that, that, that there is lots of room for us individually to find causes that we consider to be important because the gospel calls us to them or because a personal conviction like Jay was describing starts to come over us. Cause that's how it's been for me. I didn't, I didn't get any mandate from anybody 
And, you know, we always have to worry, and we Mormons are good at worrying about this. Does my individual mandate run me aground, uh, run me into conflict with church authority? Should I be cautious? Should I be careful? And I, as a believing, devout member of the church, I always say, yeah, I should be careful. I should rethink that, or I should make sure, uh, in Elder Maxwell's words, we don't over-sponsor our revelations. And I, I know a lot of Mormons who do that, and I think that runs them into trouble. I don't pretend to be preaching a truer gospel than than in, than that that is preached at General Conference. I just am trying to to apply it and understand it as deeply as I can, uh, to liken it unto myself, to look at 21st century reality and say, does the gospel, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ? resonate and like this guy William Brown did with the Bible does it speak back does it does it um, work together with what I understand about the world given what I read in the newspaper and what I read in science and the answer always seems to come back to me absolutely you right and so if that's true then I can proceed as a citizen of religious faith and conviction that I ought to be more engaged in it um, you know whether or not how much of that gets talked about in Sunday school lessons versus you know we have an organization that I've helped or uh, organize called LDS or Stewardship and we have meetings we have gatherings we have a blog we talk doctrine we talk policy um, and these are conversations that don't happen in our Sunday school lessons and sacrament talks a whole lot, although some of us have actually given sacrament talks or firesides on the topic in a non-political way to just get people to be thinking about it. And I think we need more of that. But, but you know, there's sometimes there's, I, I guess I'm trying to describe a subtle distinction between worship and what's appropriate for Sunday and what's part of my broader Mormon identity and my broader obligation as a Mormon at, in the in the context of a civic uh, sphere. Let me let me just ask something. Do you feel like um, I guess a broader principle here um, that even Sarah kind of alluded to? You know, we think of the art. I guess is it the ninth article of faith? We believe all that God has revealed, all that He will reveal, that He will reveal yet reveal. Many great and important things. Yeah. You know, I just wonder, as LDS people, if we often think, well, that's going to come through just prophets or... And, and, and it, you know, <laughs> what I see, I mean, I see that in science. I mean, God's revealing himself and his and his will. And you talk about Michael Pollan. Yeah. I mean, Michael Pollan basically preaches the word of wisdom in many respects. And he's gotten a huge audience. He's a remarkable man. And, and you've got Wendell Berry and you've got... All these wonderful, wonderful sources um, of all religions, no religions, science that are, I, I kind of sense this gelling, you know, in, in this time that we're in of, of kind of this um, common consensus. It's obviously still a small common consensus, but I think all those truths are there. So it, I guess for me, it kind of plays into what you said about um, not having to hear it from an apostle. Although, you know, personally, I think that would sure be nice. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, each of us listening to that spirit, listening to God, seeking, you know, what is our call? What should we be focusing on? How should we be stewards in our own life? Does that does that make sense to you? Is that what you found? Yeah, out it's um, it's it's kind of a f um, a fine line, right, between um, 
Well, what I would what I would say is you've you've definitely touched on something that I think is central to Mormonism that we believe that um, truth is um, scattered throughout the whole world, right? I mean, this Brigham Young used to say this all the time. It was the it was part of the founding vision of Brigham Young University and what education is all about as Mormons, right? That we're we don't have every all truth yet. And we're supposed to be gathering it, and we gather it through secular and uh, uh, sacred sources. Um, that creates an interesting tension, however, in a church that's also um, believes in prophets and seers, right? Um, so I I tend to think of those. I don't. I uh, I tend to think of what comes through the apostles as centrally focused on my relationship to Christ and on the divinity of his uh, life and the reality of his atonement and his resurrection and the path that I need to follow to bring myself into harmony with God's will uh, through saving ordinances, through obedience to commandments. So I stay, I try anyway, to stay laser-like focused on, on that. And I don't let uh, uh, anything get in the way of that. At least, again, I try. <laughs> I'm not claiming perfection, but but I I take that as as a very serious obligation as a believing Mormon. That said, I think I probably interpret um, the broader range of ideas out there in the world as as much larger. Uh, and much more worthy of my investigation than maybe some Mormons do. I don't m- mean to put myself on a pedestal, but I think as I understand the Mormon notion of continuing revelation, I, uh, you know, I think of Henry Eyring's father saying, I, the, you know, I'm only obligated to believe what is true. Mm-hmm. So, so if the truth is found in chemistry, if it's found in physics, if it's found in biology, I um, mean, granted, these are these are epistemologies that are ongoing, and they too are subject to revision and further light and understanding. So they're Just not like our own They're not solid uh, all the time, but you know, I'm pretty sure gravity's real, and I'm pretty sure that that some scientific facts I can work with and and try to make some sense of. Um, but I have an obligation to be very attentive to science and I have an obligation to be very attentive to philosophy and to literature and to culture and other religions. Um, because I am a Christian, I have a duty to lay hold of every good thing as I'm commanded by the law of charity, right? That's what charity is, is, is that's how it manifests itself, I think. And so intellectually, I think that means, you know, if there's an idea out there and it's good, you know, Brigham Young went so far as to say, well, that's Mormonism too. You know, I can call, I can claim that as Mormon. Uh, I, there's something wonderful about that notion of not being afraid. But I guess I, I'm trying to describe the tension there between, I think if we lose our commitment to that notion of mouthpieces and seers who are revealing, um, the will of God as it pertains to my behavior and as it pertains to my devotion and worship of God, at the expense of my curiosity and exploration of ideas, I think, I think that's a mistake. But I don't see that as a really tension-filled thing. I find that actually quite liberating. Can I? Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to kind of reflect this back to you and 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 ask you a little bit about this because. So let me see if I am understanding you right. So 
you're looking at the the brethren of the church or the the um the prophets, seers, and revelators as more they are revelators for spiritual things for Christ, um, but kind of limited to that sphere from your own perspective, like from a spiritual perspective or a theological perspective. Whereas you also look to um, certain scientists, certain um, theologians outside of Mormonism, philosophers as revelatory in the in their expertise or in their sphere is. Is it fair for me to describe what you're saying that way? Well, I, I'm not sure I would call it revelatory in the same way. I mean, I don't, I don't know how, um, you know. There maybe there are different kinds of truth too. I mean, you know, the, the revealing the will of God as opposed to revealing the reality of things are, are two different kinds of revelations. Um, and you know, I could, I could have a true understanding of how the world works how chemical processes make a plant and how a plant photosynthesizes. But that doesn't tell me anything about how I ought to live my life or what kind of a person I should be or what are proper thoughts toward other human beings or even toward that plant for that matter. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which, um, you know, one philosopher of science says science is indicative um, it just sort of indicates what is, but it's not imperative. It doesn't tell you what you should do. Um, so I, I don't know that it um, even qualifies as comparable in significance. I mean, if I have to say what you know, what is the most important thing I learn in this mortal life? Well, it's who I am spiritually and what my obligations are to my my God, to my fellow beings, and to myself as a, as a child of God. But but on the other hand. Um, or not on the other hand, but sort of, and, <laughs> uh, and I'm also commanded to be, um, open to further light and knowledge, right? And to be, um, exploring and searching. I mean, there's all these verbs in chapter seven of Moroni about searching in the light of Christ and laying hold of things and cleaving unto that which is good, forsaking that which is evil. Um, not getting the two confused. Yeah. I mean, the interesting <laughs> thing is that which is good is not necessarily the same thing as that which is true. And that which is evil isn't necessarily equated with what is false. I mean, lots of people, myself included, well, let's just say everyone has false ideas, right? Um, and we might get lucky and discover what those are before we die. <laughs> right. But we will also die not knowing what some of those were. Uh, presumably we'll learn later. That doesn't mean that, that having false understandings of things um, prevents us from being good. Um, I think having more proper understanding of the nature of things helps to increase our capacity to do good, but it doesn't guarantee anything, right? And in fact, in some ways, if our will is you know, too willful or too misdirected, uh, more information and more knowledge only ends up giving us the opportunity to do more damage. I mean, sort of, we always use Hitler examples, but you know, he had a pretty, he had pretty good scientists to work with. Right. He had some pretty good understandings of how things worked. Let me, uh, and I don't mean to, um, at all be compatible. I'm giving you a little bit of pushback because I think some of our less listeners are, um, (laughs) you know, they're going to hear this and they're going to struggle a little bit because I think, and you know, um, 
this challenges people in two different ways. First of all, it challenges people because I think there are a large group of LDS people who are not familiar with the environmentalist issues. And I think politically and culturally, um, feel a pressure to stay away from those issues. And I think that there are, there's another group of LDS people that are encountering these issues and feeling a little bit of resentment because they identify, like I'm sitting here identifying with all of this, even though it's new information Mm -hmm. from this environmentalist perspective, but I'm a science lover. I read about physics and biology just for fun, but I experienced a lot of, conflict with the church and science. And I think through correlation, and then there were really outspoken brethren, Bruce R. McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith, um, where people looked to them as the prophets, seers, and revelators. And they spoke really negatively about um, kind of these other worlds, right? I mean, in Mormon doctrine, science is actually called evil. <laughs> you know, he uses that word in association. I'm warning us against the evil philosophies of science. So I guess what I'm getting at is I think it's beautiful to see the the gospel from that perspective that you're expressing. But I think there's that other side where people have really felt in conflict and there's going to be resentment, right? They're going yeah. to look to these same brethren who are our spiritual guides and say, yeah, but you also talked about this and you also said this and then feel some really some cognitive dissonance. Can yeah. you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's, that's a really <laughs> val- valid, uh, mm. valid question. I mean, I, I took a lot of, uh, comfort and inspiration from elder Anderson's recent articulation of this in his talk about enduring to the end. And I, I can't remember in the talk why this is from October, 2012. I can't remember why he made this connection, but he, he sort of paused at one point and he said, um, the truth of the restored gospel will not be found in isolated comments by isolated church leaders, but it will be repeated again and again, and it will be expounded upon, you know, repeatedly. And so, you know, when I hear a statement like that, I hear a very careful, um, respectful articulation of the fallibility of church leaders. Um, we don't really have an official doctrine. Uh, what we have are statements that the church leaders will not lead us astray, but that's a big, broad definition. And I think in the essential matters, in the, in the spiritual things, uh, they will not. Uh, that's my faith. But that doesn't mean that an individual church leader might be mistaken about the age of the earth or about, I mean, you know, there were debates about this. Um, there were very high church leaders saying things, um, as recently as a few decades ago, specifying how old the earth was and so on. But those were generally isolated. They were not corroborated. There was no official even if you look at the official first presidency statements about evolution back in the early 20th century, they did not denounce evolution as a false theory. They simply affirmed the spiritual truths that we know. Um, how those reconcile with the theories were left to us to figure out, right? And so I generally think there's, there's more room for the intellectual uh, inquiry and exploration than we give our own selves credit for that the church is trying to allow us to have. Now that's not to say that there aren't moments in church 
history where church leaders have gotten really worried about that that leeway and wanted to kind of rein things in in, in some ways uncomfortably. Um, but my faith is with with the church as it moves forward over time. It 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 always seems that the that the that the most tense moments pass and over time the the most essential truths get repeated and the ones that you know i sometimes pine that almost for, sounds like darwinism <laughs> <laughs> they don't get selected over time right. I, I i really do think i mean sometimes i i think the church could use uh, would would um would serve the members well by specifically denouncing ideas that are false, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen this with the, the blacks and the priesthood and the theories that cropped up at some pretty high levels as to what explained the ban on the priesthood and so on. And then, and then they've, they've have denounced them as, as false, but, but, uh, um, you know, certainly for decades, that was not the case that those, those denouncements uh, were not there. And so it put, a lot of people in an awkward position, but I think that you know, I think in the end, the position of faith uh, was rewarded in the sense of faith being an expression of openness to possibility. I mean, I think people get in themselves just as much in trouble in the church by assuming they know what the church really its position really is when, in fact, it hasn't been articulated that we are obligated to. Um, um, have I, I? I can't think of an example, but just sort of. Um, well, if we're think, thinking about environmentalism, we could say, well, the church has expressed concern about the philosophy of Darwinism. Um, I'm concerned about it too. I think those concerns are perfectly legitimate. I do think it's disturbing to contemplate a universe where self-interest is the only thing that matters and where competition is the only reality and material reality is the only thing that is. Um, That's not what I think is ultimately what Darwinism means. I think it can mean much more than that. And I've been comforted by reading Christian Darwinists or Christian evolutionists and saying, okay, they've helped me understand this in a completely different way that I find very refreshing. So suddenly... I re- I mean to go back to Galileo, right? I mean if if I read the Bible and I say the Bible says the sun moves, then it moves. And I am obligated to believe that the sun is that the earth is the center and the sun is moving around us. And all Ga- Galileo wanted to say was all the Bible is trying to teach us is how to get to he- how have how to go to heaven, not how heaven goes. Right. <laughs> like right? That. So you don't have to look to the Bible and say can the Bible um, tell me everything about scientific truth that I need to know. Now, what's interesting about this guy, William Brown, is he goes back and he says, well, it doesn't necessarily propound all these theories, but it's not incompatible with them. Right. There are moments in the text that, that are rich enough that we can see some plenty of room for compatibility. I find that fascinating. And that's how I think my Mormon faith works. I think, you know, I believe in truth and i believe that i'm obligated to follow it and and uh, but i also believe that i have a moral obligation to bring my will into submission to god's and i believe that key to that process is listening to the mouthpieces of church leaders and i know that is for some people a, a very hard struggle and maybe part of the 
part of the issue. I don't pretend that's easy. And it wasn't easy for me to come to that, but it came by, so by experience. you did struggle with it at some point? I oh, mean, sure. You, you came yeah. in conflict with oh, it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a family where, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. My parents know that I adore them. Um, and, and I don't have any complaints about how I was raised, but I, they, because they struggled, the blessing they gave me is they didn't pass their struggles on to me. They didn't make me have to have the same struggles they did. They sort of let me figure it out on my own. But I knew that it was hard for my mother to and, 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 and my father at times to listen to certain teachings of the church leadership. And um, But they we didn't spend our Sunday afternoon meals going through all of their complaints. You know, I think they were sort of... And, you know, they've got a family now of... Um, different faith positions, and they they accept and love the family equally, um, and that's 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 a great gift. But what I want to say is that I grew up thinking, well, gee, I think my parents don't like everything about General Conference. What is it that they don't like? And for years, when I would listen to General Conference, I would hear my imagined version of their voices in my head <laughs> telling me what was wrong with things. Mm-hmm. And and that wasn't fair to them. Sure. And it wasn't fair to the general authorities who were trying to talk to me either. I wasn't listening for the Lord. I was sort of listening for, I don't know, you know, I was working through psychological relationships to my parents and to the church that had nothing to do with this fundamental quest of, you know, is God, what does God want me to hear? And what is he trying to say through these these people? Do you think God wanted you to hear the environmental side of his theology? I mean, do you kind of feel like it's a calling, or is there any kind of like um, testimony or personal spiritual quest yeah. wrapped up in it? Uh, that's a really delicate question to answer because I don't want to sound um, I don't want to sound self important, um, but for me, it's a very personal thing. Yeah. I think I, I, I have a line in my patriarchal blessing that doesn't actually say anything about the environment, but what it says is without getting too personal, um, you know, I should be engaged in civic activities basically. And, you know, I was 18 when I got the blessing and I was like, I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, what's a, what is a civic activity? <laughs> what would that involve? And then the only thing I could think of is I'm supposed to run for office. Like, <laughs> no way. <laughs> you know, I don't, I it just, and, and I wasn't, I mean, I was sort of semi-political. I had a, I have a brother who, um, at the time, I think we're both sort of equally political now, but at the time he was very political and I was, I, I didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't get passionate about things I read about in the paper. I didn't read the paper a whole lot. He did. He cared about what was happening, happening in South Africa when he was in college. You know, he was all part of the anti-apartheid movement. And I was like, I don't, I don't care. So I can't, um, I, it took me a long time to understand what that meant. When I moved here in 1998, uh, the week we moved here, uh, we lived in Southeast Provo and it turned out we had moved right near a rendering plant where dead pig smells would waft through our property, um, several times a week for hours. It would just stick there depending on how the wind was blowing. And my wife, uh, was, um, uh, none too pleased with that. We had young kids. Uh, I remember her crying the first several days we were living in this house. Like it was a huge disaster that we had 
found this home. And I, I was a little disappointed because I had called people in the neighborhood and tried to find out what the neighborhood was like. And no one had mentioned, oh, there's this stench that comes through <laughs> once in a while. So I started going to city council meetings. I started getting a little bit involved. And it was a minor, small thing. But um, I came home one night after going to a city council meeting and I said to my wife, I said, that was really fun in a weird way. I was like, I felt, I felt like I was supposed to do that. And she said, well, maybe this is, maybe it's the environment that is supposed to get you engaged in civic causes. And, you know, again, I'm speaking very personally. I don't lay claim anything other than personal guidance for me. I thought, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. And it was very clear to me from that point forward, I should do this and I should do it with humility, but I should do it with persistence. And I remember Several years later, um, Steve Peck and I and um, Terry Ball at BYU organized a conference on stewardship at BYU. It was the first of its kind. And Steve Peck and I in particular were relatively new faculty at BYU. Terry Ball was more experienced. And he was very cautious as a result about how we did all this stuff. And and I was a little naive about how I, how this would work and so on. And, you know, it was bureaucratic and it was challenging at times. It wasn't, it wasn't what people might imagine. I didn't feel like we were getting censored. We were getting told we shouldn't do this, but it was challenging. And sometimes I think the challenges are internal. I think we imagine we have to overcome our own, our own imagined enemies and our own imagined fears. It's not to say that they're not based at all in reality, but most of the time, our fears are disproportionate to the reality and our perception of opposition is disproportionate to the reality. And that's what it turned out to be. I had to fight through a lot of that. Like, I don't want to draw attention to myself. I don't want to look like a rabble rouser. I want to, I want to do this and I want to do this because it makes perfect sense given our doctrine. But I knew that there were people who saw it as, well, that's a little unusual, you know, a religious studies symposium at BYU open to the public with board of trustees approval um, on stewardship of the environment, you know, but it all went, it all happened. And I remember as it was happening, Paul Cox was giving the keynote address, all this, by the way, the selected proceedings of this conference are in, in, well, it's out of print, but it's online. You can, if you Google stewardship and the creation, you'll find an LDS perspectives on the environment. It's at the religious studies center website, uh, the whole book, Paul Cox gave the keynote. And if you don't know Paul, he's, you know, brilliant ethnobotanist biologist who used to teach at BYU and is world famous, lives right here in, in my stake, currently serving as a bishop. And he was giving a keynote and he did this long Q&A afterwards. There were, hall was packed with people from all over the place. A lot of people came from all over Utah. And I was, I was manning the microphone, passing it around. And this is a very personal thing, but I felt washed with joy while I was doing this. I just was like trying to fight back the tears. Like, I am so glad I did this. This feels like the best thing I've ever done. And, and so I've tried to, I've tried to manage that, um, honor that feeling by continuing, but carefully, Hopefully, with proper humility and willingness to be corrected if I if I'm off base, right? And I and I try to make sure that everyone I know knows that I'm willing to be corrected if they think I'm I'm out of line. Um, but and I'm not trying to speak for the church. I'm not trying to speak for BYU. I'm trying to speak from a personal conviction about what I think matters. 
Um, but yeah, for me, it's a, it definitely felt like, you know, my groove, my, my place, the thing that I should be, I should be doing. Um, not that everything else gets tossed to the wayside. I'm still supposed to be a father and I'm still supposed to be a good church member and all that. But that definitely feels like what I was meant to do. So George, I've heard you talk about, um, like being in a church setting, I don't know if it was Sunday school or what, but where you, you, you basically teach things out of the scriptures, um, about the earth and its creation that just kind of lay out this wonderful theology that we have that so many of us as LDS people haven't heard it in that context before that really reinforced the idea of being a steward to the earth and, and having this connection and this appreciation for, for living things. Um, share some of those scriptures and how, you, how you've done that. Well, I like to <clears throat> remind people that um, the story of the creation is pretty central to the restoration. I mean, there are three restored accounts of the creation in the book of Abraham, the book of Moses, and in the temple. And so that has to be pretty significant. And and I also, as I was alluding to earlier, I think the story of Moses in the book of Moses reiterates that issue, right? That it's so central to understanding who we are that Satan is quite invested in trying to run some interference on that and distort it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and then, and then I've teased out, um, what I consider to be the central doctrines of the restoration, right? That the preexistence that we were spiritually begotten, uh, children of God, that the fall was fortunate. I, we, earlier we talked about other Christian responses and some Christian theologians are saying maybe the fall is a little more positive than the negative and we ought to see the body and the earth as not just a way station that we're trying to suffer through to get on to what really matters, but actually where it all happens. Um, so I, you know, I think, and we're all familiar with that, right? And Adam felt that men might be and men are that they might have joy. Now, of course, in Moses, it also says we are um, born into misery and woe. That's part of the fall too. <laughs> you can't have happiness if you don't have sadness. But, um, but I talk about the, you know, the centrality of the body and of the earth in that theology um, and the spiritual creation before the physical creation that plants and animals are described in the book of Moses as living souls, which is pretty revolutionary. Um, that's also the phrase used to describe human beings. It doesn't mean we're exactly the same, but it poses some interesting questions about a kind of spiritual kinship with the world and spiritual presence, subjectivity in the world, um, that the earth is going to be the center of, uh, our celestial destination um, and, and then of course there are all the wonderful passages in the doctrine and covenants, especially 59. I think that's probably the most important one, uh, 18 through 21, where it talks about, um, you know, that, that all things are made for the benefit and use of man to please the eye, to gladden the heart, strengthen the, uh, the soul. And, um, but everything is to be used with judgment, not to excess, neither by extortion, um, that's all connected. That's the revelation about the Sabbath day and about keeping the Sabbath day holy. And if you go back reading in some of the other theologians, 
that I've been reading, I learned quite a bit about the meaning of the Sabbath day, keeping it holy as a recognition of the holiness of the creation, right? That that was the, the, the first instance of the seventh day and the Sabbath is the creation itself. And it's letting the creation rest, right? Um, giving it a break and helping it to restore, um, and the word of wisdom is another important one, the uh, mandate to eat meat sparingly, to eat things in season. Um, you know, most of what we're learning about the waste that goes into food packaging and preparation and the transportation of foods is incredibly harmful to the earth. And if we ate locally and in season, we ate lower on the food chain, we'd be a lot better off. The earth would be a lot better off. Um well, so mentioned- the law of consecration, I think, is pretty central as well. Just the the mandate to be gentle and and moderate in our consumption of of natural resources. So, uh, DNC fifteen forty nine talks about not wasting flesh, right? And that that's an interesting phrase when you think of the flesh of the earth as all of the natural resources. We're we're not supposed. And you look at Brigham Young and lots of other presidents of the church have preached uh, modesty and everything we understand terms of environmental problems today are, are directly tied to consumption levels. I mean, overconsumption is, is one of the worst things we can do. I want you to go back and talk about the, the Sabbath day, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more. I mean, I guess you're, you're, what you're saying is inherently obeying the Sabbath day can be an environmentally ethical, friendly Experiment is that mm-hmm. right? So talk a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting. I read. Uh, uh, I, I, th- I think it's Orthodox Jews don't drive on on the Sabbath, um, and uh, you know, I sort of thought, well, and then I, I was reading this in the context of a writer saying we need to revive the Sabbath day commandment, and we need to try to keep the Sabbath day holy by not working on Sundays. You know, and, and I thought, well, gee, that that's kind of a nice little. Uh, um, benefit that Mormons have been giving the world since they started <laughs> that they didn't even realize, you know, that we weren't just, you know, doing right by not working on the Sabbath, but we were doing right by the earth. I mean, you know, we're reducing our consumption levels by re- not, I mean, I know that lots of Mormons drive on Sundays when they go to their grandparents' house for dinner or whatever, but, um, you know, and we could maybe make personal decisions about not driving on Sundays to extend that, um, but it is a it's a mandate uh as as I understand it from the Old Testament context and as I see it in fifty nine, right? It's it's not by accident, as I say, that it's connected to um being aware of the earth and its blessings and that idea in fifty nine that talks about fasting and then eating with the singleness of purpose and of heart that the, the you know, when you when you eat simply and you you don't lust after it you don't eat gluttonously and you are you are pausing and then you are engaging and using the earth's resources you're going to appreciate it aesthetically right i mean eating a meal slowly and carefully well prepared is a spiritual experience. <laughs> Which is another another thing that's coming on this the last yeah, decade. Is yeah. A well, and if you've notion. ever seen Babette's Feast or any of the great <laughs> film movies, so they make that point pretty clearly that it's not a kind of pure physical pleasure um, at the expense of the spirit, right? That that it is a kind of a whole recovering of wholeness. And I think pausing from work, pausing from activity, pausing from consumption is a, 
a really valuable way to recognize the, the creation. And maybe, you know, maybe we could do things a little, a little more mindfully about the earth. Um, you know, I, I, I wish a lot of, a lot, I wish we walked to church more often than we do in Utah. I know it's a luxury in Utah that other Mormons elsewhere don't enjoy, but I mean, the churches are so close. And, um, I know one primary president who, decided to, um, this isn't a Sabbath project, although it was related, she was trying to get her primary kids to walk to church. But one of the things she did was she created a uh, graph of miles walked to equate to the 1,400 miles from Nauvoo to Salt Lake to honor the pioneers. She challenged the kids to walk 1,400 miles as a primary collectively. So they counted how many miles they walked wherever they walked, whether it was walking to church or just going for a walk in the evening with the family or walking to the grocery store or whatever it was. And they could count all those miles and all these people in her ward got way behind it. And some families adopted the 1400 method mile method for themselves. Um, so anyway, and I should say, I, you know, I've given these things, uh, I don't, I don't, uh, introduce a lot of this in church, but I have, I have given a sacrament talk on it. I've given a fire, several firesides and a couple of Sunday school lessons when the lesson was on the creation. I just, you know, talked about what great doctrines we have and that we should honor them. Um, I don't, in a church context, especially, I don't try to make it political. Um, I, I've, you know, I don't want to alienate people from the get go and say, Al Gore was right, you know, and, and let's start there, and then and then we can see what kind of common ground we can find. But can, you know. can we can we talk about that? Because I mean, we're sitting here having this discuss discussion about our theology and how environmentally yeah. friendly and beautiful it can be. But um, I think that the reason why we don't talk about it, I mean, I guess what I'm hearing. Let me let me think of how I just want to say this. What I'm hearing you saying is that. It shouldn't be a something that we couldn't talk about in Sunday school, right? I mean, if it yeah. is part of our theology and it's inherently part of our scriptures and and it's right there, why do you? Why are you? Why do you have to be careful when you go to church, right? And yeah. I think the, you know, obviously, the answer is it, it's political and it's culturally taboo sometimes. So why? I would say that. Um I don't I don't feel reticent in talking about the doctrine but I I don't want people I mean <clears throat> I think it's important that people know uh, this isn't a PR thing let me just put it this way <laughs> I I care as much about helping the poor and I care as much about you know following the commandments that have nothing to do with earth stewardship as I do about earth stewardship so it's not like this is my single cause, you know, and it's the only thing I talk about. I, I, I am a little sensitive about that because I'm to the point where I've been doing this for so long. I've written a lot about it and people who know me well know that this is kind of my thing. And to the point where, you know, somebody makes a comment about the earth somewhere in a conversation and they look at me like I'm the <laughs> earth guy, you know, and, and I'm like, what, you know, you live on this planet too. I mean, it's not, it's not like I have any claim on it. So, I mean, I, I get a little tired of that. I'm, I'm exhausted at times by the, the perception that this is something I obsess about. Um, because I would like to talk about other things too, but on the other hand, it's important and needs to be talked about and, and I'm willing to lend my voice, but, but in church, 
Um, I think people who know me best know that I make comments in church about all kinds of things, and this isn't the only thing I talk about. And I also don't think that the liberal, I'm a political liberal, but I don't think the political liberal uh, response to the political conservative crackpot who makes um, rude comments in church that are politically inappropriate is to make politically inappropriate liberal comments. So it's not... An eye for an eye. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> well, I you're trying to be a Christian or what? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't tie my political ideology. You know, I don't. I don't see it as as um, dictated by every dimension of my Mormon belief. Uh, that's not to say that I don't think I should think. Ser- you know, a lot of conservatives are very passionate about. Hey, look, we got to think seriously about our doctrine and apply things in a political way, and this is how I do it. And I respect that. Uh, I do it differently than a lot of political conservatives do. I have some things in common with them, but a lot of things not in common. And I tend to think my interpretation of my doctrine and its application to politics is a little more, um, there's a little more of a gap between the two. And I think that's important because I think it's dangerous to start assuming that I haven't overlaid the gospel with a particular political interpretation. In other words, I, I have to be worried about imposing political ideology on the gospel rather than having it work the other way around. Well so said. I try never, I always try to make sure whatever I say in church, I don't avoid talking about environmental stewardship, but I always try to make sure that I don't invoke something that's a jab. And I don't, I don't say something that is intended to um, um, alienate. I think it's always, always got to be an invitation. And I don't know that I always pull that off, but, but I'm not shy about being vocal, I guess is all I'm saying. I just try really carefully to make sure that it's, it's, because if I, if I'm really not convinced of that, then that's a problem. If I really think environmentalism is a liberal issue and everyone should be a liberal, then I don't think I'm going to gain much ground that way, right? I think I'm going to end up just pushing people away in the way that some people say everyone ought to be a conservative, you know? I challenge every Mormon conservative I know on that very issue. You can challenge me on the particular policies, but I will fundamentally fight you on the notion that you think I'm morally obligated to be a politically conservative, uh, a political conservative. That's just not, I mean, otherwise you're saying the church's position on political neutrality is really just a wink, wink. They don't really mean it. And I know political conservatives who think that they think the church doesn't really mean it. They really want everyone to be politically conservative, (laughs) but you know, that's, that's where I would, I would, and I wouldn't argue in church over it. I mean, I, you know, but I might pull someone aside and say, I don't know, you know, I kind of see it a little differently and blah, blah, blah. You mentioned something about um, earlier, and I don't think you quite meant it that way. But that, you know, environmentalism is separate. Uh, your environmental feelings are separate from po- um, dealing with poverty and other issues like that. Do you see an interconnection oh, yeah. between how we consume, how we view and treat the environment, how we um, respect these things, and, and is that contributing? To, to poverty within ourselves, uh, own communities, and elsewhere in the world. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel pretty strongly about that connection. Um, so you're right. I, I didn't need to mean to imply that they're separate. But um, in fact, I think precisely because a lot of people do perceive them as separate, 
Um, and therefore I'm going to stick with the humanitarian side of things, because if you're telling me I should care about the earth, you're asking me to give up on, uh, helping economies grow so that people can be fed. Right. I, I get that concern. I think that's a real concern. I mean, and it's a legitimate question to ask, will environmental, um, actions hurt people, right? I mean, will it help a, help the owl spotted owl, but hurt the logger sort of, you know, is the most stereotypical example. And I, I think, um, I think if you, as I understand it scripturally, there's no distinction. Um, God is not asking us to take care of the earth at the expense of human beings, nor is he asking us to take care of human beings at the expense of the earth. It doesn't seem to be in any doubt that both are possible. Now, sometimes issues, specific issues come up where it seems as if I've got to choose one or the other and, and I'm facing an impossible choice. Um, but I, I think I have to have the courage to have, and have the faith to believe in, in a, in a solution that, that tackles both at the same time. And I think we're learning more and more all the time that they are deeply interrelated. I mean, um, the best example globally is climate change is already affecting and will continue to affect the poorest nations and the poorest people in those nations disproportionately. I mean, you and I live in a, in a very well-developed economy and the American West is by most uh, estimates going to be hit pretty hard by climate change. It already is getting hit. I mean, we're seeing decrease in snowpack, shorter, um, um, shorter winters. Um, certainly the, the pine beetle is destroying forests everywhere in the West due to warming temperatures. And the pine beetles aren't dying off at the same rate they used to in the winter and so on. So we're facing those issues, but we have economic means to respond. <clears throat> And we live in homes and in circumstances where, you know, the immediate effects are also not as palpable. But if you live in Bangladesh, you live below sea level. Um, I think it's something like 140 million people in Bangladesh live at or below sea level. So if there's any kind of rise in the sea, uh, their livelihoods are at stake. Um, a lot of the major conflicts that have happened in Africa are tied to environmental, uh, extreme environmental events climate related events, droughts and, and other kinds of problems that have led to, uh, tribal conflicts. Can you um, give us a specific, just so that it becomes a little bit more real yeah. for some of our listeners? Um, well, as I understand Darfur, the, the genocide that happened there was related to drought conditions and competition over decreasing resources. Um, like I say, if you trace, um, uh, uh, if I'm going to remember these correctly, the, the floods in Pakistan. Uh, actually, it's interesting. I, I've talked to some of the people in the humanitarian department of the church, and you look at where the church is sending humanitarian aid, and very often they are going to places that are most affected by climate-related events, not all in all cases, but very often it's it's there's a connection. And Haiti, for example, um, and this is maybe a little bit off the... Um, you know, there, there's some difficulty and there's controversy over this too, you know, tracking a, an environmental event to climate change is, is a little bit like trying to track a specific home run that Barry Bonds hit to his steroid use. Um, 
<clears throat> did that home run go out of the park because Barry Bonds uses steroids? Well, the guy was hitting home runs before he used steroids. He had some hot streaks. He had some cold streaks. But during the steroid use era of his career, you can see over time an increase in home runs, right? So you can't track it exactly, but you can see a, a broader trend. <clears throat> but in Haiti, where there have been recent uh, hurricanes and earthquakes, the hurricanes are not only more intense, but um, because of on-the-ground conditions, due to their poverty uh, and the devastations that the people have suffered there, a lot of them survive on wood for their fuel. So they're already engaged in a deforestation of the island, which of course makes mudslides much more likely to happen. So when you see a hurricane sweep through a place like Haiti, the damage it does to people is disproportionate to what it would do you know, somewhere in the United States because the conditions of... I mean, these are people living in tin shacks. These are people living on hillsides where mudslides are going to kill them. But so there's, there's a... Um, uh, and there's a long history to why those people were that poor in the first place and why are they subsisting on wood from the forest and so on and so forth. All I mean to say is that whenever you're looking at natural disasters, um, they are almost always also human disasters. In other words, there's some human role um, that is um, played in the effects of a natural event, either because climate is, is um, increasing the extremity of the, the event or because the consequences are um, more devastating due to on-the-ground human conditions. Um, so it's, it's you know, we talk about those as acts of God. That's actually a term in, in insurance policies, right? Um, but they are, they are as much acts of human beings as they are acts of nature um, in that we, we do play a role in, in either the extremity of the event or in the consequences of the event. How do you feel like um, another example might be how we get our food? How does that, in terms of um, our wants and desires and the kinds of foods we want, particularly meat, I'm thinking, yeah. How talk about how that affects the environment and affects poverty um, in one sense. Well, you have, when you eat um, beef, you know, and I, again, you're, you, you've nodded in recognition of Michael Pollan and other other folks who've written about this. But when you're eating um, something like beef, you're eating something um, which has required an extraordinary amount of energy and land and water and fossil fuel to produce, because you've got to feed these cows, you've got to have land that grows the grain that feeds these cows, you've got to have the water that grows the grain, you've got to have the fossil fuels that transport and and pump that water, you've got to have the fossil fuels that transport the meat itself and process the meat. There's the fertilizers um, and the pesticides. Fertilizers. That are yeah, it's an extraordinary amount of land use. Um, and you have the methane gas that, that the, that the uh, cows produce, which is also 15 times more powerful as a, as a greenhouse gas than CO2. Um, so there's all kinds of uh, externalities and costs that go into the producing of just one ground beef, one pound of ground beef. I think it's the equivalent of something like a gallon of gas. So 
but if you eat lower on the food chain, um, you know, I mean, it's sort of, and it's actually, the, it's interesting that it's also similar to what you see in terms of health charts about what meats are better for you and what, what meats are worse. Um, it's almost identical. You know, you're better off eating white meat than red meat. You're better off eating fish than white meat. Um, and then as you go down the chain into, into the vegetables, you're, you're doing a lot better, right? Um, the average meal travels about 1300 miles in America. Uh, so we, we're an extraordinarily expensive food industry, um, in terms of the environmental cost. Can I ask a sensitive question? Um, because I, as I'm sitting here, I'm feeling kind of uncomfortable with the fact that, um, our own church has huge ranches huge ranches right and i I think that we're do i think that their intent i don't mean to criticize their intent i think that they're trying to um you know have stores for their people and things like that but it doesn't seem from what you're saying to be very you know healthy for the environment and maybe not necessarily healthy for the people that might be consuming all of the meat and and maybe having some kind of a negative effect overall um also so much of the building of the kingdom, quote unquote, is malls and um, are the big, you know, that's the controversial issue. Or even just consumption of natural resources with um, chapels and temples. And yeah. I know that they, you know, they made some efforts in like the laundry system, right, of some of the temples. But I think a lot of people that are that hear this start to feel like... Uh, is the church responsible for this kind of stuff? Do they know? Are they aware? I actually, um, I actually think the disconnect is different than what you think. Okay. Um, the church. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to claim. Not first of all, I don't have extensive knowledge uh, of the church's doings in terms of its ranches and its construction habits and so on. But what I do know is very, very positive. The ranches, as I understand them, and I actually had an ch- opportunity that fell through and haven't been able to follow through on this, but I was um, invited to visit a ranch uh, that's owned by the church in Wyoming uh, that apparently, and there's, of course, their massive holdings in Florida. They are run by uh, what I understand to be people who are very expert in uh, kind of sustainable ranching. And they use very sustainable practices in the in the design and, and running of these ranches. Now, how that compares to alternatives that the church could could do, uh, I don't know. And there's probably still arguments to be made about efficiencies and so on. But you're right to point out that this is a humanitarian thing, and the fact that it's done in using, according to what I've been told, and some church uh, officials have said at the symposium we held uh, back in 2004, uh, they're following the latest cutting-edge understanding of sustainable ranching. You know, um, George, it makes me think that um, you like a number of things in the church that we've seen um, change. I mean, you know, Ezra Taft Benson was a, you know, a huge, I think, influence in the agriculture industry. Yeah. And, and again, we, we applied industrial practices in a sense, um, um, things of scale and, and efficiency to food production. Um, and so I, I think we're, we're, you know, we, we, we're, we're just human, all of us. And so we, 
we just cycle through things. We we grab hold of these ideas and we run with them, and then we look back and go, oh well, maybe that wasn't the best idea after all. I, I've kind of left some damage, and and now I have some new information. It's better, and I and I'm, I'm guessing that's kind of where we are a little bit as a food industry, but also as a church, because the church kind of followed that same model as they saw. Yeah. You know, I mean, America went crazy with meat. Yeah. And and then the church saw, and I think, an opportunity to invest and, and have huge land holdings and things. I mean, I'm just off the top of my head speaking about this. I haven't read anything to, to support any of this. But I'm just trying to – I think we're cycling through. And I, I can see, as I've seen the church make – you know, other changes, um, some kind of fundamental ones like, you know, the blacks and the priesthood saying, you know, we just don't understand why that happened now. They weren't willing to even say that for many years, you know, and then how they're treating, um, you, you know, the gay community. Um, I've seen some wonderful changes in that, those those aspects too. So I can, you know, I, I, I see this where in, in, I mean, it's an evolving thing. And so I can see them moving past that at some point. Um, yeah, that I can happen because I mean yeah. I can see how it naturally happened to where we got to where we are now, and so I can see them. They're bright individuals and moving beyond it as they, yeah. you know, explore Michael Pollan, who's you know very well respected in his research and everything, and, and he's just one of many. Yeah, I, I I think I think that's true. I think there's a sort of inevitable error um, that comes in in practice. And I think, you know, we, along with everybody else have, have made plenty of those mistakes. Um, the disconnect I see, I mean, just going back to, I was going to say just sort of anecdotally other things I know <laughs> that are, that have sort of caught, given me some pause about, uh, rushing to judgment on it is that the, the newest chapels, and this is maybe a more recent development, but they are moving toward uh, leads. They have had lead certified chapels built. They're talking about building many, many more with solar panels. Um, the church uh, library is lead certified. The conference center has, you know, native plants on its roof. Um, it won a number of awards. It won a number of awards. City Creek actually won an award from Sierra Club for its green design. It's it's an extraordinarily, I mean, it's controversial for other reasons, but I think it's an extraordinarily green project um, from what I've read about it. And um, and so there are promising, and the, the disconnect that I see is, well, if that's all going on, why... Why aren't we hearing more about it, and why is there no connection between the buildings and the the talk? Right. Uh, the by the way, the church office building has been uh, heated by geothermal energy for ever since it was built. That's kind of a cool little fact. Really? Yeah. Wow. So there's so I, and I I uh, have interacted on a couple of occasions with the head of architecture for the church, Jared Doxey, and he is as passionate about this as you'd hope him to be. But I've asked him if there isn't a bit of a disconnect. I'm like, why is there all this really cutting-edge green stuff happening on the building level? I mean, we took a tour of uh, an interfaith group up to the Farmington Chapel um, that that is LEED certified, has the solar panels on it and everything. And and Bishop Burton, when it was built, announced the this was happening, and he said, we're doing this because it's good stewardship, because we're part of the community of man and this is the right thing to do and it's like wow that's great and i from everything i heard about bishop burton he was an extraordinarily green 
leader in Salt Lake. And that's one of the reasons why he won all these awards and was so beloved is, uh, he encouraged church employees to use public transportation and so on and so forth. He got it from what people have told me. Um, we're taking this tour of the Farmington chapel and Jared Doxey's just going through it's, you know, it's way beyond laundry. I mean, it's everything in that building is extraordinarily cutting edge green stuff. And my biggest concern was, but the people who go to church here every Sunday, don't do know. they know? They drive their. I'm telling you, they and don't do know. They, do they? Do they? He said that you know. He said he certainly, from his perspective, he hoped the building had pedagogical value. Right, that you would constantly be aware everything from the windows to the. Uh, uh, to the xeriscaping outside and the very, very sophisticated uh, watering method that was used and the solar panels and so on and so forth, that it, you couldn't help but see the message of the building, that the building taught principles just by being what it was. Um, but he also acknowledged fairly that the curriculum of the church um, hasn't kept, is is not yet, in sync with that kind of a design that there, there might be some need for more incorporation of stewardship as part of say provident living part of, um, you know, just the general message about welfare, right. Uh, and about modesty and so on. My and, sense and is the church about is modesty a little bit. So yeah. Some people will hear that in certain contexts. So what do you mean by modesty? A modest consumption, okay. yeah. Modest, con- I, uh, immodest consumption is you know disproportionate, conspicuous consumption. Okay, I, we've got to go there. Then, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's good. I mean, we are a reproducing church, right? We we are we are having children. We are cons- and and which I I have four. So I, and I love my children, right? Yeah. And I had as many as I wanted. But I mean, we we as a people, we're we're growing and we're spreading out and we're consuming, and um, I mean, I grew up in a fifteen passenger van, you know, seven kids, home, yeah, you know what I mean. And we we bought paper cups because it was easier to throw away a paper cup than to wash nine, and you know what I'm saying. And and I think that you might have uh, used more water washing nine than. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. But I, I mean, it's really hard to get yeah. away from consuming when you've got these large, large families. And I mean, in all honesty, I have to say that what, the biggest challenge for me is getting up in the morning and being a mom. And I've got to haul four kids to and from school, and and they're all different ages, and it's yeah. harder. You know what I mean? I'm, and and then I'm dealing with, I've got my list, and I don't have a lot of time in the day to think about how I can be green because I, I'm filled up, really. I mean, I've got all these children, and we've got big families and big communities. And when when I go down to the church potluck, you know, I mean, we're we're bringing our all our paper goods and we're, I'm just saying it seems, and maybe it's just here, but I, I mean, I grew up in Vegas. It was the same way in Bozeman, which tends to be a very, um, environmental friendly, you know, conscious community, but we tend to be just culturally set up for consumption. Can you yeah. kind of talk about that? Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know I mean, it's delicate, but what can we... Yeah, no, I... I there's got to be a way I don't or care something. if it's delicate. I mean, I just think... I, it's just not an easy... I I feel like I still need to do a lot of edu- self-education about population issues, but there are a couple things that I think are relevant. One is, I stand by... Personally, I stand by the principle that has been expressed by church leaders out of concern over um, encroaching uh, on the parental right to make those decisions, uh, that that I, I'm very uncomfortable with any kind of system that, you know, infringes on those rights. I think it's very important, both culturally and politically, that parents feel the freedom to make those choices um, without... Um, without those kinds of pressures, right? But precisely for that reason, I feel like, well, then we have, we have some obligation to, if not a very high obligation, to be as serious about defending that right as we are about preaching a doctrine of modesty. Can so, I just say, so yeah. multiply and replenish. I mean, should that be part of our thinking? We're willing to multiply, but also... Multiply and be able to replenish as we yeah, go. Yeah, absolutely. And not just the multiply side. Well, right? or if you see if you see the wording in section one hundred and four where it says it says there is enough and to spare, but it must be done in my own way. Then it, you say, well, okay, are we giving as much attention to the rest of those verses that describe this really serious mandate that you and I as Mormons ought to be serious about reducing the gap between the rich and the poor? Now, you know, there we can disagree about policies and about how that happens, but we shouldn't disagree that it's a serious problem and it's a, it's a moral problem because that's how it's worded in those verses. The world lies in sin as long as there uh, somebody has more than another, right? And we know that spiritual blessings don't come in full abundance until we're equal in temporal things. Those are those are principles that are in Mormon scripture. So I wish that we could spend as much time focusing on what that might mean to us in terms of giving generously and fast offerings and learning how to live with less and learning how to give more to the poor and the needy so that um, I, if we're doing that seriously, I worry a lot less about whether you have four or five or six or three kids. Um, a lot of large families actually per capita use fewer resources than small families. I mean, it's the, the real damage is done by very small families that then get divorced and then they have two homes and the kids are transport two children using per capita a lot more resources than a large family that by necessity has to figure out how to use things, um, by hand me downs and all the rest. So there's, there's some hidden savings in larger families than in, that's not necessarily an argument to have as many kids as you can. I'm just saying it's not always the pi- the picture of the more kids, the more damage to the earth you're doing, and and I think I think it's I, I think it's actually and I also worry very much about the uh, the misanthropic attitude that emerges toward people. I don't think an environmentalism that hates people does us any bit of good, and I think there is actually a lot of that going around, and I think conservatives are right to react against it. I think those of us who are environmental, environmentally minded ought to safeguard that position because people are part of, they are the solution to environmental problems. And, 
you know, if I am going to raise my children, I want to raise, and, and I'm going to make the, the biggest impact on the world. You know, if I, if I raise them right and they're, and they go out and are agents for change in the world and agents for good, then, you know, I don't, I don't consider it, um, uh, that there's a dividing line of immorality between two and three or three and four or four and five or whatever it is. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's right in my own heart to see a large family and just feel judgment toward them. Right. You know, so I've got to work. Th- I think we all have to work through that. I can't judge the rich. I don't understand them, but I don't, I don't have any right to judge them. I can't judge the poor either. I mean, King Benjamin just said, don't even do it. Just say yourself to yourself, you're a beggar and remember that and stop saying people brought things on themselves either out of good. Like, I mean, I, I think this is a funny thing about this is my little personal interpretation of those verses, but I think we judge the rich sometimes in their favor, right? We say, oh, well, they they're, they deserve it because they've worked hard. That's a judgment. And I'm not supposed to judge that. I don't know how they came into their money, and I don't know whether it was right or wrong, and I don't know what they're doing with it either. I don't know if it's right or wrong. Let God judge them. But all I know is that I'm I'm supposed to be you know, very careful about the resources that I use, and I should take that very seriously. So... Um, anyway, but that said, I think, you know, we could do with, uh, back in the day, Lowell Benyon used to go around specifying how much was an appropriate amount of money to spend on a house. I can't remember the last time that kind of specificity was used. He wasn't a general authority even, but I mean, back in his day, uh, I think he said a hundred thousand was more than enough, you know, or square footage, you know, how much is a big enough home? How much is a big enough car? Um, those are serious issues we need to look at and we need to talk about, you know, if we're going to talk about modesty of clothing, we can talk about modesty of, you know, if you're going to talk about where, where your blouse comes down or goes up or where, how much of the knee is showing, why can't we talk about, you know, how much, how much opulence are we displaying to the world and what kind of message does that send? Is that the message we want to send? I don't think so. I like that. So let me give you an example. So as a parent, could I, let's say I'm a, which I'm obviously not, but a parent starting out. And um, my husband and I, actually I'm the husband, my wife and I, (laughs) my wife and I, you know, try to think about family planning and what we want to do, which, I mean, family planning should be an appropriate thing as we involve God in it and prayerfully try to project what, we think would be best, what he would think would be best for us. I mean, we can consider when we think about multiply and replenish, we can think about um, our children and, and how we can also, I mean, how many we can sustain and have them kind of, and still kind of replenish the earth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And being modest in how we live. Is that appropriate, do you think, to think that way? Again, prayerfully involving yeah. God. Because I, the, I, yeah, from whatever the general authorities said, it is a very personal decision how many children you have yeah. between your spouse and, and God. I I think that's where I would draw the line. I don't have any. I I feel very uncomfortable telling somebody else what they ought to think about, or you know, I you know what they ought to do, or what would be right or wrong. Um, right. I, 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 but you again, can consider I, the environment in in part of that and how sure. Sure, but you know, I, I think uh, I think the the more important question is how I live and how we live as a family, and and not how many. 
Um, I, think, I, I, th- I think you're right. You know, if if God if God's telling me to have another child, uh, I, I I can respect somebody's personal revelation about that. I know exactly. people can get kind of cynical about that, but. Uh, again, I mean, what would the alternative be that you would prefer? Would you prefer that we all go around and tell each other how many uh-huh. we ought to have? And the fact it's of the matter is, you know, the, the church, the church does, I mean, does believe in family planning, right? It should be done prayerfully. It should be done thoughtfully. One interesting essay that I recommend you know, on this very issue is in uh, the New Genesis book, there's an essay by James Mayfield, who's a retired professor at the University of Utah, former mission president, wonderful man, and his essay is really spot on. And he says, um, you know, there are other things that ought to concern us as well or much more than the size of a family, and one is education of women. Worldwide, populations are out of control in areas where women have very little access to education, very little self-empowerment. And so the pregnancies that are happening are not equal choices between a man and woman, right? They are um, either outright abusive uh, uh, relationships, if not um, subtly abusive relationships that are not allowing a woman full expression, and the principle in the church is that it's a man and a woman who make that decision together. It's not a man that tells a woman what to do. And what's fascinating is that the study, the statistics show that the more education women get, um, the the size of families does tend to go go down. Um, and that's not an argument one way or the other about what the proper size of a family is. All it means to say is that when people are equal and they're empowered to make those choices on equal footing, um, you know, then it seems like they're in a better position to make the right decision rather than the wrong one, whatever that might be for them individually. So, so I'm comfortable with that. I think, I think I'm, you know, and there are some people who are arguing that if the middle class or the developed nations reduce their population, we may be, in in some serious problems, right. I, that's where I say I'm some not an expert are in population. Already. Yeah, I'm just not mm-hmm. enough of uh, an expert in those in those areas to to say. I just stand by the 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 principles that I think the church is teaching, and that is the you know the issue of equality between a man and a woman, and making that decision, the right to make that decision on their own, and then the principles of modesty that the gospel teaches are you know part of how we we ought to be living and how we ought to be raising our kids. Oh, well, I just have a question about um, talking about modesty in terms of our consumption. We live in a capitalist society, and I think that um, I've encountered culturally this idea that capitalism is like the true economic system, <laughs> like socialism is bad. Mm-hmm. And is there any kind of a relationship between a capitalist society and a... Um, and you know, and consumption, and then the environment. Like, is capitalism more damaging to the environment? Are there other? Is it outside of economic systems the problems in the environment, or does one tend to lend itself to more difficulties? That's a great question. Um, and and as a humanities professor, I'm probably inadequate to answer it. But I think um, there are a couple of things that I'm suspicious of always have been both from the right and the left. I'm very suspicious of arguments that say um, it's purely a systemic problem that if you just fix the system, then the problem goes away. I just, I just don't buy that theologically. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. 
um, because it, it implies that we are, you know, the, the wrongs and the rights that we do in the world are really a function purely of the, the systems of which we are a part and the structures of our society. That said, I do think that some uh, conservative thought goes so far in the opposite direction and refuses to acknowledge that there are structural problems in society that are unsustainable and that there are reasons why some people are born into and stay in poverty that have nothing to do with their failures or successes as individuals. And and there are reasons why some people are born into and stay in riches that have nothing to do with their virtues and that they're structural problems that we should be fixing as a society, right? I'm very persuaded by the thinking of uh, the novelist Marilyn Robinson, who's written a number of essays about theology and about the Bible. And in her most recent book, When I Was a Child, I Read Books, uh, where she makes uh, this kind of an argument that we need to be addressing broader societal problems. But I started with my first caution by saying those that theory can get taken to an extreme. And that was sort of the extreme of socialism, right, where you said, well, if we just engineer society in the right way, you just sort of automatically get all this good out of it. But what I find is that a lot of um, very conservative and very liberal positions are similarly wedded to this notion that it all gets solved by a structure, right? That, I mean, the the sort of naive conservatism that says, you know, just open the floodgates, deregulate everything, and open everything up to the freest market possible, and you just get all this good. It just happens, right? Independent of who we are as people. And that's absurd. I mean, you know, you just look around at capitalism and you say, well, capitalism allows all kinds of pernicious and evil industries to thrive. You know, pornography being one of the most successful examples, but you could name a whole host of others, right? Um, so policies and regulations matter or, or philosophies and ideologies matter because they do create pro and con- or good and bad um, uh, structures in society that, that produce certain kinds of outcomes. So I think as a, as a moral, religious person, I should worry myself about structure. I should worry myself about uh, ideology, but I shouldn't, I should be careful about being seduced that I, into believing that I found the golden, the golden solution. And, and I, and I think, you know, socialists on the far left and and really far right conservatives sometimes strike me as falling into that fallacy. Um, as far as I mean, there are a lot of arguments to be made against capitalism as an unsustainable economy. I mean, it's it, philosophically it's based on insatiability, right? You just you always need, and this was what Marx was so powerful in his critique of of capitalism in pointing out this this endless hunger for new markets right and so once you've once you've used up one market you you're going to find another and there's always another frontier and it gets more and more globalized and capitalism on the global scale hides all of its greed really brilliantly in a way that makes us uh, feel safe but actually uh, vulnerable in in new ways so I'm I'm not a capitalist. I'm not a big fan. But but I don't know that I'm a socialist either. I I, I don't quite know what the solution is. But I think um, uh, maybe this is why I'm sort of ultimately a religious person in my fundamental disposition. I think religion matters a great deal because it can make socialist governments work well, and it can make capitalist governments work well. 
I, I like the idea of local economies. I think that seems to be in smaller scale. Um, so that's where sort of bringing things back into local production, growing our own food, producing our own goods, being more engaged in craftsmanship and building things. And but, I mean, but, I'm sounding very utopian here, no, you, but you're I think sounding very much like Brigham Young. So maybe no, aren't <laughs> who you? was very utopian. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like one of the first buy local guys. Yeah. Wasn't he? So maybe talk about that part of our church history because I, I, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of John Turner's biography on Brigham Young. So I'd have a better answer to your questions after I'm done reading it. But I, I think Brigham Young's vision um, was was sometimes imperfect and flawed in the sense that he might have overstated the need for us to beautify the earth. Um, we certainly know that we brought a little too much uh, new species and animals into the Great Basin that were not all, all that good for the economy ecosystems that surround us, bringing in uh, animals and plants. And some of those didn't do much damage at all, but some of them did terrible damage. I'm not trying to condemn the past. I just think it's easy to romanticize the 19th century and say, well, they talked about the environment and they had a more holistic vision and they have a better understanding. In some ways, they, they, they had a very primitive understanding and they didn't really understand ecosystems very well. They didn't know what they were doing when they started irrigating the rivers. And we haven't even figured that, we didn't even figure that out until the last part of the 20th century, that we've ruined rivers for the last 150 years. And now we're trying to restore them because we think we now understand their ecologies and we think we can make make up for some of those mistakes. We're not going to make up for all of them. But I mean, you know, we thought we could do that with impunity, that there would be no cost. And all we saw was the immediate benefit of saying, I just... I mean, my ancestors were some of the first to irrigate the Provo and plant peach orchards up in Orem. But... The point is, we now understand that nature demands things of us. If we want to live in harmony with it for the long stretch, we've got to understand what it's asking of us. And we've got to try, in, 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 in at least on some level, to see its own beauty for its own sake, instead of seeing what it lacks. That's right? the language of Wendell Berry a bit. Yeah. Right and Wallace Stegner, right? He said, if you're going to live in the West, you got to get over the color green. You got to stop anticipating that everything's got to blossom like your gardens back in New England or England or the British Isles or Scandinavia. It's just not going to happen. So, George, I remember seeing uh, on Facebook a picture of you along with Dita Steed and Terry Tempest Williams at a uh, rally at the Capitol. Well, actually, what it wasn't a rally; it was a hearing at the hearing, at, during right. the Other legislative were session. There, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was it was a it was a hearing before the committee that that uh, was looking at a bill uh, that was relevant to Greater Canyonlands, and so I had gone to uh, actually had prepared a little speech, but they only allowed four people to speak, and so I wasn't able to say anything. But of course, Terry Tempest Williams said it all, so it was okay. Um, I, you know, uh, I, I believe in the democratic process and I believe that we should be as engaged in pos- as possible in it. Um, and I think there are different interpretations of that. Uh, there's certainly a lot of Mormon environmentalists who feel very strongly that we should be more engaged in political protests. Um, I, 
I think that we haven't fully tested the democratic process. It bothers me that the rate of voting is as low as it is in this state and elsewhere in this country, that the average citizen knows very little about their own city politics, their own who their representatives are at the city, the state, and the national level, or what, what kind of decisions they're making. I mean, every time they do polls in this country, again, either at the local state level or at the national level, the, there's, there's, the representatives are out of sync with their, um, with their, the people they represent on, and especially on the, on the environment. I mean, I just saw a poll released today that that the majority of Republicans believe climate change is real and human-caused and feel that their party ought to do something about it. The majority. Um, so that's pretty shocking news, right? Um, and when they do polls in, in the state of Utah, they find that the Republicans are out of sync with the the majority of the population on everything from wilderness to climate change, and it's pretty sad. And why that's happening is because people are disengaged from the political process. People aren't even aware that that's going on, right? They're just trusting in the party name or the process so implicitly that they're not even engaged in it. Do you think that that's a, a function, or that's a function of the fact that the more extreme ends of, of the political parties tend to be the loudest. I, Talk a yes, little bit about I, that. I think, and I mean, we know factually that the caucus system in the state of Utah is is rewarding the most extreme positions. I think that's the reason the church in the last election encouraged specifically that people went to their caucus meetings. I don't know if you remember that, but I mean, and, and of course there was this huge turnout. Because moderates weren't being heard at those meetings, it was the it was the extremists that were ruling the party politics and essentially electing our elected officials. You know, in numbers less than a few hundred, were choosing our next senator or choosing our next uh, congressman. So i i think I think a more engaged public is what's really necessary, and I think that involves. Reading the newspaper, I think that means knowing your city council members. I think it means knowing your mayor, maybe even knowing them by name or getting to the point where they know you by name. Um, I think people ought to be more politically engaged than they are. I think there's a shyness that a lot of us feel. I know I felt it. I was describing my early encounter back in 1998, going to my first city council meeting. And um, I was terrified, actually. I remember being super nervous. You know, there's a big crowd because people were upset. And I only had two minutes to say my say. And I stumbled all over it. And But I think we, ha- we have to start with an acknowledgement that we've got a serious, di- seriously disengaged public. And we've got a ridiculous amount of implicit trust going on that as long as somebody has my party name attached to their name, I can assume they represent my values and we can go forward. And when the politics are presented as well wrapped up and packaged as LDS approved um, and in subtle or, or not so subtle ways, then it does sort of um, make it easy for somebody to just sort of say, I don't, I don't really need to think critically about it. But, you know, again, if we're really listening to our own church leaders on this, that's not what they're saying. That's not what they're saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear, I hear this constant call to being engaged in a good cause, to be engaged in the civic sphere, to read the newspaper, to be informed, to be informed voters, to participate in the voting process. And it's not just going to the ballot and casting a vote. It's it's much more than that. You don't have to run for office, but why not? But it's also about 
um, knowing the issues, having relationships with people and knowing, getting to the point where they know your voice and that they have heard from you and they understand what your concerns are and that you do that in great numbers that has a that has a great effect. I mean most most of what I understand from people who know a whole lot more about this than I do that people when they have more information at their disposal and they are able to assess it in a calm, careful way come to reasonable, moderate positions that um, uh, is are, that share much more common ground with more people than than otherwise. This divisive polarization and partisan politics that we have right now is is a symptom of a totally disengaged public. Let's let's move from that part of it now to the equation of how does your how does your um, eco theology how does your Mormonism affect how you feel about wanting more protection for these beautiful lands down yeah. south. Well, I, 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 this might sound a little bit uh, blasphemous from an environmentalist perspective. I, I'm not, I'm not um, overly obsessed with protection of wilderness. I mean, I, I want wilderness protected, and I want w- more wilderness than we're currently protecting. I think it's a mistake if I get so worried about protection of wilderness down south that I forget that where I live is nature just as much as Canyonlands is, and that my own watershed is under siege. All right, this lake right here, Utah Lake, is in desperate need of restoration, and the river that flows into it is in desperate need of restoration. So, and, and, and the air I'm breathing right outside of my door is in desperate need of help. So that to me is almost more important than, than, and primary, um, in part because it affects me most directly. Uh, I do think there's a link. I mean, I think, you know, to the degree that we continue to go aggressively after fossil fuels in this state and elsewhere in the country, we're just walking down the wrong path and we're creating more problems in terms of climate change and pollution. Um, and I think we ought, ought not to be doing that. So I share the same politics that other environmentalists uh, feel about those issues. But um, I also think that, you know, I have a responsibility right here in my city and in, on the state level in the more urbanized and developed areas of, of the country. Um, we got to be paying really close attention to how we're living here, what kind of policies we're forming here, because that's where we're affecting the whole system the most directly. Um, you know, if I preserve more wilderness and prevent more drilling for fossil fuels, great. But but I'm also going to think to my... I, I like to think that, you know, achieving major um, developments in public transportation might even be bigger, a bigger deal, right? Or, or restoring uh, the watershed upon which I depend uh, for my life and livelihood might be more important. Or, you know, sometimes we, we think of being an environmentalist as saving some exotic landscape. And I Very love good. those exotic landscapes as much as anybody else. I don't mean to no, disparage them. But I, I don't think, I, I, th- I think we're, we run the risk of, of not being aware of our home ecosystem. Um, I know a lot of Mormons who feel, as you were describing earlier, that, you know, there's so much going on in the day. It's so, it takes so much to raise a family. It takes so much to be active in the church that, you know, worrying about another cause like this is just too much, right? Um, I think if you can think of it as an integrated process whereby it, it hits home literally and figuratively, um, and it's part of who you 
are trying to strive to become. I think it's, it's for the better. I mean, I, I'm a big rec- recreational fanatic. I love trail running. I love mountain biking. I love hiking. I love kayaking. I love being outside and I love using my body, you know, to exercise outside and enjoy the, the natural elements. And those are moments when I feel the most spiritually happy, the most spiritually whole, um, you know, I mean, I, that's not to say I, I love going to the temple too. And I love going to church. Those two provide me a uh, unique and, and very much needed spiritual nourishment. But there is something about being outside that I think is spiritually valuable enough that I then have to pause and say, can I enjoy this forever? Can my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids enjoy this forever at the rate we're going? And, and I look around and I, and I worry that, that we're not, we're not doing it. We're not, we're not living sustainably enough to provide that kind of gift for future generations. So I have to always remind myself every time I feel that spiritual, heartfelt, healing pleasure in the outdoors, that that's a gift that I have to honor with some kind of sacrifice or commitment and it can start small. It can be a modest step in the right direction. Um, it can be, you know, anything from taking steps to reduce my impact on the earth, reading the newspaper a little more regularly, writing letters, uh, participating more in the political process, um, trying to educate my neighbors and my friends about issues that, that concern me, whatever it might be to sort of grow a culture of environmental stewardship that is as that gets to the point where it comes as naturally to us as home teaching. Um, that doesn't mean everyone has to belong to an environmental organization or have agreement on policy, but it ought to be a natural thing that we we all nod and say, yeah, I, I, we care about the environment. That's not, that's a no brainer. That's because of who we are. Um, you know, Bishop Burton said that when, when he uh, announced those chapels, he said, it's built into our DNA. And I, I, I kind of heard that and thought, wow, that sounds great. And then I thought, I hope he's right. <laughs> I hope it really is in our DNA and I, and, and it probably is, but we, we need to sort of dig down and remember it. And maybe, maybe it's a recessed gene that has to, has to get a little more exercise or something to remind us. Cause I, I think it, I think it just makes, um, it makes me a happier person when I, when I connect the pleasure I experience. I mean, I don't know a single person in this state and I certainly don't know any Mormons who don't like recreation in the outdoors or doesn't think that Utah is a staggeringly beautiful place and, and they're proud of what they have. So that's not the issue. It's not like more people need to love nature more. It's connecting that to some kind of way of life that's gentler and kinder and more principled and a little more thoughtful. And it's not something we can do individually anyway. It's something we have to do all together. So it's, it's that there's comfort in that too, right? Very good. We Thank can't you. run faster than we're able. No. Yeah. I'm so appreciative, uh, George, of you taking so much time and answering so thoughtfully. That's been Sarah, very fun. Your wonderful yeah, questions. Thanks. Thank you. And your perspective. For inviting me. So <laughs> with that, we'll sign off. You've been listening to A Thoughtful Faith with Jay Griffith, Sarah Collette, and George Hendley.
A Thoughtful Faith podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. We are your hosts. I'm Mark Rigo. And I'm Gina Colvin. Our purpose at A Thoughtful Faith is to provide support for Mormons who want to stay engaged with their religion, yet are struggling to find conversations that support their faith transitions. While we seek to honor the beauty of the LDS faith, we also understand that discipleship doesn't necessarily mean uniformity and agreement. Hence, we make room here for all of those who are constructing or reconstructing a thoughtful faith journey. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go toward keeping the podcasts alive and building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at a thoughtfulfaith.org.